Hey, everybody. Welcome to Quizlet, which is a weekly show where we interview the upcoming guests on Quizzertron, which is our monthly live show where comedians battle scientists to see who knows more about science and or jokes. I'm your host, Rebecca Watson, and I'm here with my co-host, Quizzertron's resident comedian, Keith L. Jensen. That's me. That's Hello. <laughs> Long pause. Hey, Keith. <laughs> And this week's Quizlet guest is Adam Rogers. Hey, Adam. Thanks for being here. Hello. Hi. See, I, I jumped in over no, – no long pause for me. I just jumped in right on top right. of you trying to talk. Yeah. <laughs> That's was the was there a long pause? That's I blame the technology. <laughs> it was a long pause. <laughs> okay. I wasn't falling asleep. I swear. It was the technology. I'm and wide awake. Now that we've all referenced it, I can't edit it out. So <laughs> it's going in like that. <laughs> So Adam Rogers is the author of Proof, the Science of Booze, as well as being senior editor at Wired, where he specializes in science and technology. And Adam is also a Quizotron alum, having performed admirably, despite being given distinctly less than high-end booze during the show. Specifically, <laughs> it was that tequila that came in a giant skeleton wearing a sombrero that I got at Costco. Uh, so Adam, welcome. Welcome back to the Quizotron family. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Good. Uh, let's start by talking about proof. Let's talk about booze. Uh, since that's the reason why I originally wanted you on Quizotron, because I like science and I like booze. Uh, that what? was the that was the whole plan for that book. That was my yeah. genius my genius pitch. I was <laughs> like, you know, you know who might like there are booze people who might want to read about science, and then there, I might get science people who want to read about booze. Yeah, and I. I, I had this experience where I would go to um, like I would talk to other journalists about this idea that I had for a book on the science of booze once I had the idea, which took a long time. And I would they, I'd say, well, I think I'm working on a book. And they'd say, what is it? I think it's about the science of booze. And they would all get the same look in their – you were allowed to curse, right? Were you yeah. Cool with that? Yeah, that's they would, they would all get the same look that journalists will sometimes get. I've had it myself. Or somebody else gives them says an idea to them and they go fuck. I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah, like it, it had it had it had especially among science journalists it had a stickiness. Yeah, I was like, oh, people might actually like this. This could this could work out okay. I should say that I didn't know it was going to be a book. It took another science reporter. It took a, another journalist to explain to me that I had a book idea. What did you think it was? Like a car or maybe a... (laughs) I was having some object permanent problems. Maybe a sofa design. (laughs) He was going to write it on the bathroom wall and leave it for other people to enjoy. I had had this idea and was reading it. I was like, I'm happy. I've understood some things. Anyway, moving on. Uh, No, I was was writing a feature for for Wired. I was writing an an article um, that was specifically about this, what I thought of as just a fascinating science scientific mystery about it. this uh, this uh, mycologist guy who studies fungus trying to figure out what this mysterious fungus was that lived on the walls of distillery warehouses oh. on the outside and i wrote this this feature about this this mystery and what it said about how you understand evolution and, and funguses and stuff like that and i was and i got i went off on this whole tangent <clears throat> because i'd been collecting string on 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 booze and on science and why things taste the way they do and how they what, how distilling works and all that stuff for a long time. And I went off on these long tangents on it. And I was like, well, none of this ever got into the story, of course, but at least I know it for myself. And I was at a dinner with a bunch of reporters um, and editors. And 
uh, including Bill Wasik, who's at the New York Times Magazine now, and Carl Zimmer, who's a great science writer, <clears throat> a bunch of other folks. And I was telling them all of this stuff that I was just like, oh, it's fascinating about how you turn starch into sugar so that yeast can eat it. And they all looked over the table at me, and Bill Wasik said, like, you know, that's a book, right? <laughs> and I went, what? What's a book? And he just went, whoa, all of it. <laughs> and so yeah. Everything you just said. Yeah, what you just said at this dinner. And that was your... And the research... Doing the research for that book was incredible, right? <laughs> I can't really remember. No, you know exactly. <laughs> here's a sad, a sad truth. I actually did not. I drank. I certainly drank. I tasted stuff, but I did not drink a, a ton while I was doing the book for two reasons. One is that um, my I, I I was turning roughly turn, when I was turning 40, 41, and my alcohol tolerance went off a cliff, which is ironic <laughs> and sad. Yeah, because just and when also, you most want to drink. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And also, I found that unlike some writers, I absolutely cannot write when I am drinking. Mm. Um, my desire to, my motivation goes out the window with like the second sip. My um, my motivation goes out the window when I like order a drink or pour it. <laughs> just right. like, or even look over and see the drink. Yeah, I'm like, um, well, nothing else is getting done today. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was a real bummer. I was sitting down to write what's one of my, actually one of my favorite parts of it, which is all this stuff about sake because I really like sake. It's all this history and, and technology of it, and how the, the, a guy trying to optimize and modernize the process for making it. And I was like, you know, what would be nice right now? Well, I'm writing this. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice glass of decent sake, which I happen to have in the fridge, some in the refrigerator right now. And I, I was working at home. I, I stood up. I went to the kitchen. I poured a glass of sake. I came back. I put it down. I started typing in. I took a sip. I looked at the computer. I was like, well, that's it for tonight. <laughs> and four days later, you woke up in a dumpster in San Jose. <laughs> His, his next book is about heroin. <laughs> you, feel like you just can't get a lick done when you're on an opiate. I love you. You had two reasons why you didn't drink a lot, and I kept waiting for one of them to be, I'm an alcoholic and I'm in recovery. And so I was yeah. very relieved. I Yeah, that was – I definitely had to um, – you know, I, I wrote this book, and I, I had to really um, – you know, I'm cognizant of the fact that, like, for a lot of people, alcohol is a real problem and it's a real societal problem because of that. And, you know, people get killed when they're driving and it has addiction problems and, and, and it causes other you know, cirrhosis and potentially cancer and like, like that's serious. And I had to figure out how to deal in the, in the book with saying, I do understand all of that. Other better writers have written about that. That's not this book. There are right. books about that. Those books are real. That is a real thing. Yeah, that's not this one. And most of the book, I, I think I probably said it in the introduction. I've certainly said it to other people. Most of the book takes place uh, like one third of the way through your second drink. Oh, OK. That's that's sort of right. Yeah, that's like my favorite place to be, I think. Right. That's yeah. a very that's very pleasant. If, yeah. you're, if you're not a person from alcohol is a problem. That is a very pleasant place to be. And so that most of it takes. And then the last chapter is about hangover. So the last chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Go. Yeah, a third of the way through the second drink is when I'm best at pool, uh, yep. other games of skill, <laughs> darts. Can I can I ask you a question that that will reveal that I haven't read the book? <laughs> <laughs> Please. So, what what about this idea that uh, different different types of alcohol give us different qualities of drunk. Like I always hear people say, Oh, you know, I'm an angry drunk when I'm drinking Jose Cuervo and <laughs> I yeah. get a nice mellow drunk when I'm drinking wine, but it's, it's all the same chemical alcohol, right? So how much uh, is there to that? 
That is a, that's a really interesting question. I love this question because people do feel that very intensely. Some people feel very, are very certain that, as you say, tequila makes them angry or gin makes them morose or something like that, right? And, and, bec- and because of that, you, what you have to ask then is, okay, because alcohol is the psychoactive ingredient, how is that possible? And there are a couple of different answers, and I, I know which one I kind of buy after having written the book. But w- one answer would be, well, some drinks have more or less alcohol in them, and so that that can have an effect. So, like, you know, the uh, the stories about absinthe, right? Absinthe used to be banned, you know, in the world. They didn't make it. It's not banned anymore, right. but it was banned, and it was banned in part because it contains uh, wormwood as one of the botanicals that gives it flavor. Wormwood is a uh, comes from a tree, and uh, it has as one of the chemicals in it something called thujone, T H U G O N E. Thujone is in at high doses um, a hallucinogen, and people thought that folks like you know Byron and Shelley and the Romantic poets who were drinking a lot of absinthe were they, they had absinthism and they thought oh it'll give you seizures and turns you into a murderer and it makes you crazy and we have to ban absinthe, and um and the, and and when people who uh, went back and analyzed pre-ban absinthe because they wanted to make it now. Um, looked at the contents, you know, you can find an old bottle and stick a hypodermic needle in it, run it through gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy or something. What they found is that the levels of thujone were way, they were subclinical. This was like not even microdosing of thujone. There was not enough thujone in this stuff to give anybody hallucinations. What there was, was a lot of alcohol. It was very, very high fruit stuff. It was really, really potent. So if you drank a lot of it, you get even more drunk. Okay, so there's that. Another possibility. What if there are other psychoactive chemicals in alcohol? So the only uh, the only thing that people drink that's only alcohol and water is vodka, right? Everything else has a bunch of other stuff in it, the things that give it color, the things that give it different flavors, get different aromas. Um, th- these are all broadly called congeners. Um, and so that's everything from the flavors of the tannins that come mostly from the oak if you age it. That's all the stuff that, that, like, if you're making an eau de vie or a brandy, all the fruity flavors that remain in it, esters and aldehydes and, and, and uh, all kinds of organic molecules that also make it through the fermentation and distillation process. So maybe some of them, maybe something there is also psychoactive. That's controversial. There are some people who think that histamines, the things that um, – like uh, uh, induce allergies that you, if you have an allergy, what you're responding to, right? Cause you take an antihistamine to deal with that. Some alcoholic, some alcohols do have um, histamines. Wine does, especially that's the thing that when people say they're allergic to red wine, that's usually what they're talking about, even though that's almost always not true. And white wines often have more histamines than red wines do. And, you know, again, it's hard to know whether somebody's feeling something that's not really a chemical thing that they're feeling. Um, but that's a possibility. Maybe histamines are also psychoactive and at high enough doses they can be. So maybe that's a thing um, that would give you a different emotional response. Now, what I actually think, I'm, this is going to be one of those 40-minute ones, not a 20-minute one, sorry. <laughs> it's fine. Um, <laughs> I'm enjoying that, it. <laughs> is that, there, is that it, this is a psychological thing. Now, the psychology of drinking is just as important as all of the other sciences of it. Drinking is a very theatrical thing. You know, there's studies that will say, like, if you think a bottle of wine is more expensive, you think it tastes better. There are whole labs, academic laboratories that simulate a bar to figure out the social dynamics of being in a bar. And in fact, when you're in those bars, what they've had to do is create um, placebo drinks, drinks that you can't tell whether they have alcohol in them or not, right? Because yeah, you want to, yeah, and you end up with a, with uh, four test groups. You end up with a group, the way that they do this, they'll say, okay, there's a group that expects to get alcohol and gets alcohol, a group that doesn't expect to get alcohol and gets alcohol. A group that doesn't expect to get alcohol and doesn't get alcohol, 
and a group that <laughs> I was I was just waiting to see if you could remember which one. <laughs> which ones have I done? I've done expect get. I think you haven't done the worst one, which is expect alcohol but don't get it. Doesn't get it. Right, yeah. exactly. Expect alcohol doesn't get it. Thank you. I was, I'm trying to draw the four squares <laughs> in my head while I'm talking. Right. <laughs> um, but and and in those groups, if basically if you expect to get alcohol, even if you haven't got it you'll manifest the symptoms being buzzed, including getting flushed in the face and starting to sweat more. You'll talk a lot more. You, like it looks like you because, because you expect essentially it's a placebo effect. We and, did this to and, a friend in high school once who was very naive. We went out to dinner and had rum cake afterwards. And she asked if there was alcohol in it. We said, yeah, it's very heavy alcohol. And she spent oh. the rest of the night tripping over herself. And we thought it was hilarious. We're, we were terrible yeah. people. <laughs> it can work. And um, so the people who study, there's a wonderful book um, about this that's sort of about the anthropology and sociology of drinking called Drunken Comportment, which I love that title. It's such a great title Um, that that talks about how different cultures um, react differently to alcohol. Psychologists call this an expectancy. Basically, you you do a thing and you have an expectation based on your prior experience, based on when you saw your parents drinking as a kid, based on when you watched what it was like to be in in. in Rick's bar in Casablanca and how people act and, you know, stuff like that, that that's what, that that's how it will affect you later. And, and I think that when people talk about different alcohols affecting them differently, that that's what they're talking about. I think these are psychological expectancies born out of the theater and the, the, another term from the social sciences, sort of the, the saliency, the importance to them as a person and their identities of, of drinking and what drinking is like. I think that's what's going on. Yeah, there was a yeah, there was a study recently that came out that <laughs> the headlines were – and I don't remember if this was in a Quizotron or if it was in one of my YouTube videos, so I apologize. <laughs> but I definitely have talked about this before for people who are like, wait, I've heard this. Uh, the headlines were all about how, oh, study proves that you know tequila really does make you rowdier. And then when you read the study, though, it's just a survey of people saying that – <laughs> they drink tequila oh. when they when they want to get rowdy, and then they do. And it's like that's not you didn't prove anything there. You you just proved <laughs> the power of our own expectations. Yeah, um, yeah, and 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 uh, and it's very cultural. Different yeah. cultures deal with alcohol very differently. And so like drunken comportment has accounts, anthropological accounts. And so they, it has all the problems with cultural anthropology. So there's some, you know, how much influence did the observer have on it? Whether did the observer really see what the culture does or only see what they presented to, you know, in the 1950s, a, a white dude who was the first white dude who'd ever been there, you know, right. like you, there's a lot you don't know, but, but they would say things like, you know, here's, here's one culture over here that um, the men always drink separately from the women. And when they do, they're very social. And here's a culture over here that men and women drink together. And when they do, the men get really violent. But here's a culture over here where the men and women drink separately and the men get violent when they're on their own. And here's a, like all these different right. cultures were the only and they had kind of control groups where it was like, here's a culture that only drank alcohol. The pre-contact with Europeans only drank alcohol at ceremonial occasions. And it was very solemn. Post-contact, the Europeans introduced whiskey, basically. Right. <laughs> and and they become violent and alcohol things get rowdy yeah yeah like well okay well there's there's no the chemical is the same the difference is the social context of it that's really interesting because i i always thought as an old school hippie i always have this idea of you know even though i do drink often (laughs) uh i do have the the 
idea that alcohol culture is in general violent and bad for you compared to weed culture, which I think of as being very like relaxed and more intellectual and creative. Um, yes. Sorry. I should have said since drunken comportment with subsequent research, the only commonality that people have found when folks are drinking, especially to excess, is that it does make them more violent than other drugs of recreation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me that that is true. And that is, that's a more recent finding than the, than the drunken comportment work. It, it does. Alcohol is, and, and, and it's a weird uh, balance because alcohol is the only recreational drug for which no complete mechanism has been elucidated, like how it works in the brain, what it's actually doing in your brain. And it's also one of the only ones that's understood to um, increase violence and aggression as opposed to other emotional responses. If only it weren't so delicious. That is a down, that's yes, right? Yeah. It's the major, and if, if that, you know, one and three quarters drink wasn't, didn't put you in such a perfect mode <laughs> that you just want to be in all of the time. So then that's you just right. keep drinking and then you're and it's a And one of the, one of the um, neuropsychological effects of the stuff is that it <laughs> makes you want to have more or doesn't make you want to stop having less or whatever. Like, right. you know, it turns off your ability to say, I should probably not do this anymore. That's one of the first things that it does. You know, I, I also, I just had this conversation with some friends on a, a weekend in Vegas where we were drinking a lot. And uh, I pointed out that sometimes when I want to lose weight, I'll replace all my alcohol with weed. And my friend uh -huh. said, well, weed makes me, gives, gives me the munchies. And I was like, it, it really doesn't for me, but being drunk does give me the munchies. I think I eat more when I'm drunk compared to when I'm high. Did you look into that? Like, do, do drunk people get the well, munchies? You know what? I, uh, I didn't, but, it, but it's in, you're, you're making the comparison with weed and that it's something that people have talked to me about too. It's like, oh, is that going to be your next book and stuff? And, and what I've said is because I have no personal organic sort of connection to weed in the same way that I do with alcohol. It, it wouldn't be the right, it wouldn't be the right book for me. Somebody should do that. And I think people are, but, but, um, but weed also has more psychoactive and more, more physiologically active chemicals in it than just alcohol. Like they're unlike, you know, sort of vodka as the primal state of like alcohol and water, you know, in addition to the cannabinoids in weed, there are also like, there's, there's just a ton of stuff in there that nobody's really completely figured out what it all does. It's why you yeah. can get right high cbd low thc kind of stuff every strain is a little bit different the strains aren't aren't really regular so sometimes the strains are going to vary within themselves you know they have the same name like there's just a lot more chemically going on right also. and i i have heard recently there's been some skepticism amongst researchers as to whether or not weed really does give you the munchies or if that's just all psychological um, interesting yeah but so. i but they do help it with appetite though but i guess you might have the psychological effects whether you prescribed well anyway yeah i don't know how much it helps with appetite compared to just uh ridding you of nausea so uh, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if there's a difference there but i don't know we'll, we'll have That's to get a weed researcher on next month <laughs> maybe cheech and chong are available yeah famous scientist cheech and chong yes doctors <laughs> doctors cheech and chong uh, extensive I believe it's, research uh, professor chong but yeah okay, that's right <laughs> probably i think those degrees are from uc santa cruz probably right is that, is that right or, i think that's right yeah under, undergraduate read <laughs> graduate work at, Does, yeah. is there a high times university i think they have a <laughs> correspondence course you can take <laughs> that would be that's a that was a that's a better joke than my stereotyping poor helpless 
institutions of higher learning, which I now regret. Well, that's what I'm here for, sir. Uh, Please send all of your angry emails to Adam at Wired. I'm sorry, sorry, Banana Slugs. (laughs) Now that weed is legal, I'm ready for it to get knocked off its high horse because the the attitude about weed, like like Rebecca was saying, was sort of like holding it in this high esteem and alcohol is so bad. I, somebody had written on the bathroom wall at a comedy club recently, smoke weed every day. And I was like, you never see that written about alcohol. No one ever writes, you know, <laughs> get smashed on vodka every day. I mean, they do say a glass of wine a day can prevent heart yeah, attacks. No, they, they, don't, they don't call it get smashed. They call it the French paradox. <laughs> they, they, right. they, they do say that about alcohol. It's it's a that fight is still ongoing. I well, um, not on bathroom walls. They don't. True, my friend. <laughs> that is true. That's, and, and that's where I get all of my information. <laughs> <laughs> I I did recently hear someone say that if you want to be an alcoholic, learn everything you can about wine because then the, no one will question your alcoholism. It's just like, oh no, right. she's just a wine connoisseur, and it's like you know. <laughs> also, I'm an alcoholic. Ha ha. Tricked you. It's really, it's a, it's a bummer. I, I, you know, go to some bar that has a really weird selection, and I, I, I chase the weird on that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, I want to try that, 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 and that. Wait a minute. Yeah. That would be five drinks. <laughs> <laughs> We're how not going to do that tonight. How do you feel about fernets? Uh, I really like fernets. I like bitter in general. And I did. I liked it when it was the San Francisco bartender handshake. Also, I think that's cool because I like bar culture. Yeah. Anyway. Do you want to explain that for listeners who don't know? Because I did not know what yes, Fernet please. was before I came to San Francisco. Yes. So Fernet is um, is in a category of drinks called Amari or an Amaro. They're they're um, basically it's an herbal digestif. Um, Fernet in particular has a lot of um, anise licorice flavors. It has a lot of rosemary flavor to me. It's very dark. It's very viscous. And um, the, the I, th- I think it's Italian. And it's not really drank, drunk in many places. Um, Argentina and San Francisco were, used to be the biggest two markets. And in San Francisco, it was a market because it was a drink that bartenders would do as a shot together. And you could sometimes identify yourself in a bar. I don't know if it's as true as it was even when I got here 15 years ago. But you could identify yourself in a bar as either being a bartender or being bartender adjacent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> by um by ordering a fernet a shot and, uh, of fernet yeah a shot. yeah and uh, and, if, and if you really want to do it you would get a shot of fernet and a ginger back you get a ginger ale with it which is really quite delicious uh, it's, a, it's a good thing to drink you're the first um, person i've ever heard describe it as delicious anything involving fernet yeah Interesting. I, mean, I think it's tasty there's some cocktails that use it that i think are really interesting um my uh my dad uh came back from a long trip to argentina very excited to talk to me about this new thing he had learned to drink. Um, he and I went to Scotland together to drink whiskeys when I was in my twenties. And we, you know, he's a wine guy and we have a lot of fun talking about this stuff. And he came back and he's like, you have to try this really great. You, I, this whole new thing. And I went to his house and he was like, so first, and he pulls out a bottle of Fernet. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I know Fernet. It's, it's a San Francisco thing too. It's good. And he said, Oh no, no, but wait, but wait. Cause the way that they were, he had learned to drink it was you would pour a, a shot or a shot and a half, you know, Fernet into a tall glass with ice and then you just keep refilling Coca-Cola. Oh. And I was like, Dad, please don't drink it this way. That sounds horrible. 
it tasted pretty, I thought it tasted fine actually. Coca Cola is an interesting drink because Coca Cola is basically a a, a, a lemon lime drink with with cinnamon flavors in it, cinnamon and nutmeg. So and then they color brown. So it, it has an interesting flavor profile. I love Coca Cola. I mean, it's terrible for you, but it's delicious. <laughs> so it has an interesting flavor profile, and together they actually tasted pretty good. But essentially, you know, that's Fernet has, is fairly high proof. It's you know it's forty percent alcohol. I think they do it at eighty proof. And if you have that with a Coke, that's a Red Bull and vodka. Yeah. Right? right, and he was basically. If you keep refilling the Coca Cola, what he was essentially doing was like mainlining Red Bull and vodka, only with weird flavors. <laughs> like, Dad, this is and not. He started using Axe body spray. Yeah, yeah I'm like, Dad, <laughs> out of control. It's 11 p.m. You have to go to bed. Like, no, drink too this. late. Your dad's in Vegas it. listening yeah. to EDM. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's you're a him. real buzzkill. <laughs> I feel bad for your dad. <laughs> He wanted a party with his son, and you were like, no, Dad. <laughs> That's Damn exactly man. what he did. He was mad. No, you're right. Oh. <laughs> hey, can I, can I ask you about there was a, a a booze, because I don't know the technical terms. There was a booze I came across in China called, uh, I believe it was called Baiju. Yep. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and, and Yeah, everybody talks about how horrible it tastes. Now, I'm not a drinker. So I tried some of it in New York, and to me, it only tasted as awful as everything tastes. Uh-huh. But man, they had this elaborate delivery system to like help you get it down. Oh, really? <laughs> what did they like? What? What beyond just like toasts? What was the What was the ceremony? No, no, I don't. I don't mean the ceremony. I mean all the different. You know, like, you know, like it takes cocktail to another level. They were like, okay, we have this shot of like straight ginger and then this thing that you can oh. bite into. And then here's someone you can punch. Uh, <laughs> that's, and, and that should help you be able to swallow <laughs> this drink. And I guess it's, it's really not very common in the States at all. This no. bar in New York bills itself as the only Baiju bar in America. Uh-huh. What's it made I of? Say, there, I'd say there's a reason for that. <laughs> uh, it's made of uh, various grains. It's usually um, by Joe's. Usually a it is often essentially distilled sake, right? It's a, it's often rice, but they'll also use barley. They'll also sometimes do sesame. There's other sources of the starches in their grains, other grains. Um, okay. Sorghum sometimes. Um, Just a melange. Yeah, it, it and, can be so many different ingredients. What makes it by Joe? What's the defining property? Uh, the, the the distilling process, which is short and cheap, often. Ah. Okay. Uh, so I it, it, this is an interesting actually it's another interesting example of, of sort of cross cultures and how cultures deal with alcohol because first of all there's a very like there's kind of a um, the social drinking in China at least classically before China became one of the world's biggest markets for other kinds of alcohol so it's a huge market for single malt scotch it's a huge market for wine. Um, especially as those things became signifiers in China of higher socioeconomic status. Um, right. So, and, and often when that happens, the, the in, in countries, the local, whatever the local spirit or the local ferment, fermented, fermented product kind of goes by the wayside. So, for example, there, there's very few drinkers, regular drinkers of sake in Japan anymore. Oh. So similarly in, in China. But, but what China did have is a social culture of, of drinking a lot as a way of forming group cohesion and say businesses or new business deals and stuff. And Baijiu was often the, um, w- like the vehicle for that. So the flavor mattered less than the high alcohol content and the togetherness of the drinking, which is, I suppose when I say it that way, sort of romantic, I find it less romantic because I think it actually doesn't taste good, but I think that people who, who grew up drinking it do. And that's a really interesting thing because I taste a lot of that. Even, um, when I've tasted before, even at high, even sort of high end, um, versions of it, 
the, the same is true with um, for me with uh, shochu, which is the kind of a Japanese equivalent of distilled sake. They do a lot of different grains, not just rice. Um, and uh, soju is the is the Korean one. Um, those are all uh, similar drinks, kinds of alcohol so similar as to be um, as to not have any real distinction other than linguistic. And um, I think send me an email from. <laughs> But when you but, but when you taste it to me, like I taste those, and I taste what I think are distilling faults, are active flaws in the distillation. They're like, no, you guys messed this up. I'm not supposed to taste that flavor in a distillate. That means you don't have enough copper in there. I'm getting sulfur off of this. Right. Um, but I think. Oh that, God, bartenders must hate you. <laughs> yeah, it depends. If they're busy, they hate me. If they're and I'm I. But if they're, if it's not busy, we have a good time. Um, I've actually been, been sure. really, the, the, the professional drinking class has been very gracious with me. They are a lot of fun to hang out with and they've been very nice to me and it's, it's really cool. I've liked that part of it. Um, you know, but, you, you mentioned soju that actually was in, uh, I mentioned soju in the April Quizotron, which is unfortunately lost to history due to recording nightmares. Uh, however, one of my questions was about how, um, South Korea recently put out a warning uh, for people to stop mixing something into soju. Do you know what it is? I want to see if you would have gotten this right. So, huh. um, it was a health hazard that was bad enough that the government needed to put out an official warning. Don't mix this oh, into man. your soju. I'm putting you on the spot here big time. Uh, I, I, I don't know. See, South Korea, I mean, was it, was it like the, some local river water or something? No, it was wasps. People, oh, yeah, no. Definitely people, don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> uh, people thought that it would help lower their blood pressure or cure diabetes or, you know, one of those other mini things that these alternative <laughs> cures can do. Uh, and it can't do any of that, but it can kill you very painfully. Yeah. yeah. Well, also, especially if you use live wasps. Yeah, and they yeah, I'm not talking like just wasp venom or something. It was actual wasps that they were like dunking into their soju. So yeah. If it kills you, didn't it in fact cure all of those things? That's a really beautiful thought actually. Yeah. It definitely lowered your blood pressure. Yeah. For sure. Zero. <laughs> yeah. Significantly. Yeah. Uh, uh Adam, if you were a mixed drink, what mixed drink would you be and why? Uh I you know it's funny. I actually, holy smoke! I have a lot of answers to that question. That's really embarrassing. <laughs> In this moment, right now. <laughs> yeah. No. I. I actually. I would. Uh, I. I would be a. I would. A, 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 I'd be a martini. Mm. Hmm. With, but with 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 an olive and an onion. Okay. Dirty. It's not, it's not No. Dry. No. No brine. Not dry. Not too dry. So I actually I mix a five to one martini, so it's, it's two and a half ounces of gin and and half an ounce of vermouth, and uh, and then I I will put in as many pickled garnishes as I have in the house. So I like a caperberry and an onion and an olive, and I've started soaking cocktail onions in absinthe per the recommendation of my pal Matt Rowley, uh-huh. and then those in, and that's delicious too. So what I like about that is that the drink itself is very clear and very pure and very uh, and and not not sweet. It's the whole other side of the flavor palette. There's bitter and there's some saltiness in it and there's uh, some sour in it, which seems Oh, come on, Adam. You're I, sweet. I feel like we have, we have learned so much about you with this question. But it's also very, like, it's very, uh, it's, it is, it's still, 
has a lot of uh, flavor and aroma to it. <laughs> I mean, the most surprising thing to me is that you think you're pure. <laughs> well, you think I think I'm, I didn't really mean pure in the way that fairy tales do. I sort of meant... Uh, True to mm-hmm. yourself, maybe? Yeah, that, yeah. that, that, that yeah. thing. There's a, yeah, that. okay. that's what I meant. I could see that. Uh, so that was your last book. What's next? Wait, wait, before, can can I, there's one question. We can't let that subject go without something really important that I've been waiting to ask him. Oh, go ahead. Uh, Our our listeners have been waiting on this too, I'm sure. Adam, please, what do we do for a hangover? What is your advice? Oh, yeah. So it's a real problem. Let me just say, (laughs) it's a real problem. There's not a lot of good research and, Almost everything that you can buy over the counter is utter nonsense. Fried um, potatoes and Coca-Cola. Well, so, uh, so, you know, part of the issue with hangovers is that people's symptoms vary widely. So um, mine I tend to ha- hold in my gut. So, like, eating a lot of food is not usually an option for me, whereas with some people they can go eat a big greasy hamburger and they feel a lot better. Um, caffeine, definitely. Uh, so the Coca-Cola okay. is a good idea. Um anti-inflammatories before you go to bed and when you wake up hangover is primarily an inflammation response it looks like in the current science so like yeah add the work you know ibuprofen acetaminophen all those things work on them but um, we should mention that tylenol taken after a heavy night of drinking is one of the leading causes of death with when it comes to tylenol overdoses just want to throw that that's out there good, no that's that's interesting too especially because um so ibuprofen can be a little bit hard on your kidneys. not so great for, if you've been drinking a lot. Acetaminophen, which is what Tylenol is, is hard on your liver. Um, yeah. And if you take a lot of it, alcohol also, the liver has to work pretty hard to, um, to deal with alcohol. So, yeah, like that's a, that's a thing, too. It's unfortunate. But I, I guess I'm sort of thinking of the, not the universe of you are, you are now hungover for the 10th day in a row and you're taking 10 you know, fistfuls of stuff. <laughs> yeah, but, I, just, like, I just wanted to put it out there because I'm, no, I'm, like, yeah. I'm an anti-Tylenol crusader, so... <laughs> I gotcha. have it out for them. Good thing to say. We are uh, looking for sponsors if anyone from Tylenol is listening. Uh, but um, there is a there's there's one actual uh, there's a chemical there's a lot there are some chemicals that have done like sort of okay kind of in sort of okay studies but the one that actually seems to work um, for real is um, uh, based on a it actually comes from traditional Chinese medicine but it, it's an active compound. Um, dihydromyrcetin, or I'm, I may be mispronouncing that. It's Oriental raisin, or Hovenia is another name for it. Um, and that, if you if you get it purified and delivered right, does seem to help with both um, having like it'll it'll make you not drunk if you're if you've been drinking, and it does seem to help with hangovers. Um, Motor mechanism is sort of getting still getting elucidated. It has something to do with extrasynaptic receptors in the brain, but um, but it's also and you can buy it in some hangover remedies. People do sell it, and you can kind of Google it and, and buy it. But I think the mode of delivery is still not really totally worked out as far as I can tell. So like if you eat it, there's some sense that well maybe that it gets destroyed in the stomach before it has a chance to work, that kind of stuff. So it's still kind of up in the air. Um, and is it also just, not like really well regulated? So we need to be careful that we're not just getting something online and then eating poison. Yeah. I mean that too, it's, it's, uh, it, it's subject to all of the same risks as any other, Kind of supplement that you would get online yeah. or you get in the store. It's like, does it really, is it really doing what they say it's doing? Is it really what they say it is? Can I, am I taking what it do right? I know about where it comes from? Am I taking it right? All those yeah. things are, yeah, you know, um, at, at your, you know, user, 
let the let the let the drinker beware. Um, so to to boil that all down, you're saying coffee. That's that's really coffee, still the best great. thing. Also, like uh, like food and pacing are a big deal because the issue is um, is how much alcohol the body is trying to essentially clear out. So a big bolus of alcohol going through your gut with nothing else in it is very is going is being infused very rapidly into your body versus like you get some food in there, maybe have a glass of something that's not alcoholic between the glasses of things that you're drinking. Um, you know that there's a big difference between like you have two drinks before dinner and then half a bottle of wine at dinner and while you're eating dinner you are drinking right like that feels different you know yeah. what that feels. So that's that's a that's a speed thing. Um, slow yourself down. That's what I think. Yeah, the the best uh, the best cure is is prevention, basically, right? It's the it's the it's the war games. Yeah, uh, don't play. The only only way to win is not to play, which is a bummer because you know it's, it's a fun game. It is a fun game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Adam, uh, what's what's your next book about? We don't I have a ton with- of time to talk about it, but you Good. mentioned it to me, and I'm super fascinated. So. Uh, I'm working on a book on the science of how human beings make and see colors. That's awesome. Which is, has fascinated me for a long time specifically because, um, in the, I, I'm, I'm interested in the, in, sen- in the senses generally, there's a, a long chapter on that that was a lot longer before my editor prevailed upon me to chill out in the, in the blues book about smell and taste. <laughs> um, and, uh, I'm interested in vision too. You know, it's that thing that like you, you might've ta- done it in, in college um, or even, you know, when you're a kid where you wonder like, well, am I seeing the same blue as my friend? Right. Right. Um, And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there's the physics of what color is to the extent that it is anything out in the world. There's the kind of the the physiology and neuropsychology of what happens once those wavelengths of light go past your iris and into your retina and into your brain. And then there's all the ways that people make colors and and show them to each other. Um, And there's a particular pigment that um that i'm interested in a, a mineral called titanium dioxide that um is kind of a it's, it's almost um uh, i guess like forest gump like in the modern in modern technological history it was discovered during the end of the scientific of the the period of um, scientific societies royal societies um, for science it was an uh, important part of the industrial revolution in the west um it was a part of an important uh antitrust lawsuit in the 1940s it, it sort of shows up in really interesting places that i think say something about um the human human interactions with technology and science which is the thing i like best so i thought you well, were going to well, say this... it was kind of forest forest green color <laughs> and oh. then you went with forest gump it really threw me for a loop there it's not a great well, reference i'm still working on that pitch do you have a chapter that'll tell us what color the dress on facebook really was uh yeah, that is actually going to be in it. You know, I, I wrote that. I wrote the, the science of the dress story for us um, at Wired. I, I will. You're not, you know, it's, it's uh, probably tacky to brag about traffic, but that was a very, very well read story in 2015. I, I believe I read it. I believe I read it. <laughs> um, and it was a fascinating it was a fascinating issue because what, what that ended up being was, first of all, a, a, a rare example of an optical illusion that worked on color rather than form. You know, mm-hmm. most optical illusions that we see are like, oh, is it a, you know, is that a... Are these a lines duck? straight? Or... These lines straight, all yeah. that, right, exactly. Because the brain has a whole separate set of processing for dealing with how we see shapes and forms. Color is basically a different chunk of meat in our heads. And and there are very few... Since the dress, researchers have found more of those kind of illusions. But that, it was one of the first ones that researchers have become conscious of, an optical illusion for color. 
And what it seems to have to do with is this really complicated and, and basic ability that um, humans have, certainly maybe other animals too, called color constancy, which is the ability to see an object as having the same color regardless of the color of the light hitting it. Oh, so if yeah. You, so if you put a, I mean, this is sort of a raw example, but if you put an egg under red light, people still tend to describe the eggs being white or eggshell color rather than being red. Right. Even though if you put, took a picture of that and used Photoshop to figure out the RGB of the pixels, it would come up red, you know? Right. And that's, a, that's, that's an example of how color happens more in our brains almost than anywhere else it does in the world. And that's really cool, right? Like, that's just fascinating to me. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Well, I can't wait, wait to read it probably, what, in a month or so? A couple of days? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, it's, it's pretty close. It's pretty yeah. much done. Uh, middle, middle of next year, I think. If I, if I do this right, middle or, or like autumn of next year, if I, if I don't screw up. All right. We're going to hold you to that. Uh, <laughs> how about uh, where, where can people find you? you wanna, what do you want to plug? Well, uh, you can find me on Wired almost all the time, a couple times a week. You can find me on Twitter at JetJocko, J-E-T-J-O-C-K-O. Uh, those are the those are my usual haunts, I think. All right. And they can find you in just a couple of weeks at our next live Quizzatron in San Yay! Francisco. Hooray! Uh, go to Quizzatron.com if you want info on all of that. So, Adam, thank you so much for being with us. It is my pleasure. I'm looking forward to seeing you at Quizatron. Ditto. See you then. All right. Take care. Thanks, Adam.